Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Laura Piggins here, beginning episode 41 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So in episode 40, I sort of closed out season four. And if you'll notice by the graphics and all, this is a part of season four. As is typical with me and planning and organizing my life and getting ready for season five, there's a whole time frame that we follow and there's graphics to create and all of these different things. And my editor, Jace, thought that season four would go through episode 41. And so, no, it doesn't. It ended with episode 40. But the time frame of getting everything ready for starting season five, I mean, we could have gotten it done. But I got this idea to do an epilogue episode. Epilogue episode. I like the alliteration there. I went around and around with it. I, put, I posted on my Instagram and Facebook that I would answer questions for the epilogue episode. And I didn't get a, a lot of answers or responses. I don't have a super interactive relationship yet with my listeners, which is fine. I think a lot of my listeners listen, but aren't glued to social media in the way that others are. So, and I thought, well, I'll go and look, look at all my other episodes and do some sort of summary of how I'm doing so far, or what I've learned as a podcaster. And, and those things are interesting and I could talk about all that as well, but nothing was really just jiving with me. And, and you know, I spent all this time really thinking, oh, these are great ideas and not, not really getting anywhere. And so I went to bed and what I often do when I can't you know, decide what to do on something is I, I manifest an answer. Like, okay, I need an answer to this question. Here's my question, universe. How can I answer this question? Help me find the answer. And so I woke up this morning and I had, I had a good sleep, but not a great sleep. And, um, and I had a lot of sort of troubling dreams. And there are just some things, unresolved things in my life that if I think about them too much, I cry. And I realized, oh, I should do an episode on crying. So then what actually came to mind for me is some experiences I've had recently around crying. This episode is going to be about crying. It's going to be about sort of what I've been like as a person who cries. It's sharing the experiences of other people. It's society and culture and grief and trauma and sadness and how our ability or willingness to cry isn't something we're necessarily born with. Now, let me go. Nature versus nurture is tricky, but crying is a biological response to an emotional situation. All human beings cry. And some people cry more easily than others, perhaps, because maybe in their psychological makeup, expressing emotions through tears is easier or more predominant. I do know that crying is one of the single most vilified emotions that there is or emotional displays. And in my own childhood and growing up and in culture and what I watched on TV and my experiences, very, very negative for me in terms of having it be okay to cry. So crying, I'm going to start with crying. In the past, I would say two months, I've listened to four different podcasts and, and two of them are podcasts I now listen to quite a bit. One is a brand new podcast and one is a uh, famous person podcast that I've just started. Before we get going there, I'm just going to talk about myself a little bit and my history with tears. When I was a little girl, my first real strong memory around it not being okay to cry is my mom and dad and my big brother, Ricky, and me 
So Jonathan and Johanna, my, my baby siblings, because of my age and this memory, they were born, but they must have already been upstairs asleep. We were in the TV room on Essex Street where I grew up. We were watching this movie called Death Be Not Proud. And it was a movie about a boy in a family. He's like a teenage boy, perhaps college age. And he develops a brain tumor. And the movie is about how sick he gets. He gets sicker and sicker and sicker. And it's the process of him going through losing all of his functions and abilities as a person with brain cancer, his family's reaction. And I remember sitting on the couch watching it. And my mother and I started bawling. Like, it makes me cry now. See, here we go. And so... We were just crying and crying. And my brother, Rick, and my dad laughed at us. They laughed at us. And I was, I was so angry. I was just utterly angry and furious that they would laugh at my mother and I crying. You guys are crying? It was a horrifying movie. The scene that made me cry the most was the boy is hobbling along because he's not right. And he bumps into his father and he doesn't recognize his father. And he just says, excuse me, sir, and keeps walking along. I'll need to rewatch the movie. It was just horrifying. And I, I just will never forget, we had this cheap sort of pleather couch and they laughed at us. And I got up and left the room. I'm so upset and so angry. And my mother got really mad at Rick and my dad and yelled at them for making me feel bad for crying at a sad movie. And so when the movie was over, well, the movie was just about over at that time. My dad apologized and made my brother apologize. I think at the time, my brother wasn't very apologetic, but basically he just was told that he was taught that you didn't show your emotions, that men didn't cry. And I reminded him I wasn't a man, I was a little girl. And he said, well, it's okay for little girls to cry. And I said, and little boys, and there was some pushback on that. And I came away from that night, you know, and my life at the time had plenty to cry about. I came away really, really befuddled that a normal reaction to something would be considered socially unacceptable. It's okay to laugh at something funny. Having said that, sometimes what one person thinks is funny, another doesn't. But it's not the laughing that's vilified or the fact that laughing in the right place is fine. That was an eye-opening experience for me, really, truly eye-opening experience. And I remember after that being very, very careful sometimes not to cry at movies or things or to keep my tear, to really try to hold it in and, and not cry. I remember my next thing was on the playground at Kimball School. So this is probably in the mid-70s. A boy fell down and, and skinned his knee and he skinned it that. I mean, there was blood everywhere and he was crying. And I don't blame him. I would cry too. But he was very crying very, very loud. And a couple of boys in, you know, we were fifth grade, teased him, started making fun of him. Cry, baby, cry, baby. Ooh, you're like a girl. And so, again, there's a couple of things with that comment. But I remember it. I remember it so profoundly. And I remember it standing up for them a bit and saying, well, that's not fair. Look at his knees bleeding. You'd be crying too, you big bullies. Like, you know, it was one of those situations where I really tried to stand up for the kid that was crying because I just felt terrible. He was, you know, bleeding on the playground. He deserves to cry. I also didn't like the fact that somehow being a girl was not a good thing. Like, oh, okay, it's okay for girls to cry because we're what? Weak? Crying really started to exemplify in my life something that showed weakness or babiness or girliness. All of those things were considered bad. Babies cry all the time. It's how they communicate. When people ever tell me, let your baby cry, well, no, I'm not going to let my baby cry. I'm going to teach my baby he or she doesn't need to cry by meeting their needs, um, not spoiling them. But at any rate, I really, really started to get upset with the fact that we equated crying to things like babies and girls in a way that meant babies and girls aren't equal or, or that their crying doesn't matter or they're expected to cry for some reason that is socially the weaker side. Uh, it was really hard for me. I really, really didn't like it. And I don't like it now. I don't like those associations as an adult. 
in my adult life, like so high school, college, and on further, the biggest thing that comes up with me is the differences between men and women and being able to cry. And we live in a, in a society now that's much more accepting of men shedding tears. And actually, you know, in any relationship between a man and a woman or, you know, between two men or whatever, I think crying is much more expected to be an okay thing. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't not be. But at least in America, American culture is very, very paternalistic in this way or very macho in this way, in that crying is something that only gets exhibited by people who are weak. In some of my favorite, favorite memories and stories around men shedding tears come from George Bush's family. George Bush Sr. lost a daughter, Robin, at age four. And that was at a time, it was in the 60s, I think, late 50s, early 60s, when emotions in general were kept private. You kept them at home and you went out into the public with your straight face or your, or your smile. And he talked about being president and being in the Ukraine or perhaps somewhere in Russia, but in that, in that area. And he was at an orphanage. I believe it was Ukraine. And he talked about the fact that he got introduced to this little boy who didn't have parents. And he, he bent down to speak to the boy and his eyes filled with tears because he had a rush of emotion around the fact that this boy had no parents and that where were they? And were they, did their parents have to give him up? And was there, were the parents, like all the things that go around children and parents not being together. And he stood up and he had to collect himself because he didn't feel that the leader of the United States of America should be seen crying in public, which unfortunately was ruined a really, really, really good moment for the world to see that even leaders, you know, have tender spots for children that don't have parents. It struck with me and it struck with me even more when George Bush Jr., his son, and he's not really junior, but was speaking at his funeral and he broke down and sobbed. Here I am giving his eulogy because he just realized what a profoundly wonderful man his father was. And he was so happy to know that he would be with his mother and with his big sister, Robin. Here we are, you know, in the 21st century, and these things are still, crying is still this up and down issue. In my own life, when I look back at relationships, you know, my first really, really significant relationship when I was in high school, going to college, was with a guy that he was a musician and a runner. And I don't remember him you know, crying all the time, but he was someone that wasn't afraid to cry. And then my college boyfriend, I probably made him cry a <laughs> hundred thousand times. You know, he didn't cry in front of his friends, but he wasn't afraid to cry with me. And in some of our conversations that were happy and sad involved tears. So I never felt that it wasn't okay to cry with him. He had a really traditional Irish, Italian, Catholic family. So many family events and things took place there. And I don't have a strong emotion around crying. I don't have a strong memory about it, which leads me to believe that it was probably just not an issue. You cried, you cried, you didn't, you didn't. And those things were relatively equal. In college, you know, I had all my cross country and track and field teammates and so many, so many girls get together and do things, you know, activities can create tears. I have a strong memory of going to a movie on Golden Pond with Marty Shea. We were supposed to be studying and Marty was like, come on, this... We'll have plenty of exams to study for. Let's go see this movie. And we did. We went up near BC. There was a theater up there in Chesa Hill. We watched On Golden Pond, which was filmed in New Hampshire. I cried like a freaking baby. And Marty did as well. We both cried. I cried way more. And we talked about it. We talked about Marty's MO as a young girl growing up and as an athlete. And just in her life, she was like, you know, shadow box the mirror, show the world how tough she is. And that's how she got ready for races. And I was completely the opposite. I was like, all nervous. And, you know, I didn't shadow box the world at all. I approached it as the open-hearted, vulnerable person I am. She's open-hearted too, but she 
she really did stand with fists <laughs> a lot of her life. And so I remember coming back and just really, really talking about the emotions in that movie and, and the parents dying and the relationship, the broken relationship between Jane Fonda's character and Henry Fonda's character in that movie and, and how fragmented they were in the movie and, and how it mirrored their relationship in real life. And we cried, oh, the tears and the tears. So, you know, all through my life, when I think back to things, I have moments that I really notice crying. I remember sobbing uncontrollably when I found out my friend Maura died, like gut-wrenching, soaking sobs. I could not have uncried that moment. And my mother responded very appropriately then, didn't tell me to calm down or stop crying. Here I am now <laughs> in my adult life and since moving back to Concord, so like after college and moving here and sort of starting my life over in many, many ways, moving through friendships and relationships and situations that can produce tears. I would have to say that the number of people who are comfortable and okay with shedding tears and crying far away in my life, the people who aren't. But of course, those are the ones who stand out. I dated this guy, Jim, for a long time. He, he was the queen of, queen, <laughs> king of the tears. He was just the majesty of the tears. He was not afraid to cry. Cried at a lot of things. Cried at, you know, when he pondered memories of his childhood, he, he would sometimes come to tears around those things. He was a very, very tender, tender soul. He remains a tender soul and could find beauty in nature and beauty in life. And sometimes those things would evoke tears. When I dated Chaz, he wasn't afraid to cry. And he wasn't afraid to cry when I met him at Molly's, you know, life support week. Sometimes life brings tears. But we are taught so much to keep them hidden. I remember at the time of Molly's death, two things come to mind for me. You know, Kenny and I were blithering idiots, crying all the time. How could you not? Just crying and crying and crying. And we weren't afraid to cry when the visitors came. We weren't afraid to cry at her funeral. We weren't afraid to cry. I cried a lot at her. Will it be the musical? Actually, I cried a lot at the rehearsal. Once the musical came, I was okay. I was in a place that I could, the tears didn't come. But I would not have held them back had they come. In my life since Molly died, in my life as a grieving mother, what I have noticed is that my tears can make people very uncomfortable. And of course, as the producer of the tears, I immediately think they're uncomfortable with me. And 99% of the time, the reason tears make people uncomfortable is because my tears are evoking in them an emotion, perhaps a connection to something in their own life. Perhaps they're feeling of inadequacy, like they don't know what to do or what to say. We aren't comfortable with tears. We don't teach our children what to do when somebody's crying other than get them a tissue and tell them you're sorry, which are fine. Those are two things that don't bother me when I'm crying. I have two pretty distinct memories with Roy around tears related to Molly's death. The first one is when he came up to visit at the hospital. It was the middle of the night and granted, things were tricky for us. I was up there with Kenny and Gracie and they were mad at me that I'd gone away with Roy and Roy was feeling very, very separate from the whole thing and what to do, what to do. There was a lot going in, but I had to let him in. The hospital was locked. It was late at night and I went down to let him in. And when he came in, we were in the vestibule and I just collapsed into him. Like I just collapsed and started to cry. And he just stood very, very stiff. You know, at the time, I just think maybe he just doesn't do well with crying, but there were times early, early in our relationship that we both shed tears with one another. And it was very different then. It wasn't a big thing. And crying in, the, in that relationship was, was always, you know, quickly, quickly admonished or gotten over. Stop crying, stop crying. And then I remembered minutes later, him sobbing at her bedside. So here's a person where crying is a huge conflict. I'm not sure why. My worst memory around that was one of our many, many times that we were fighting or arguing. And I was really trying to say goodbye to him. Like I knew this was probably it. And I remember saying, I just want everything to be okay. And I started to cry and he goes, oh, here you go. Here you go. 
pulling the tears again, thinking that crying was something I did on purpose. And there were many times in my relationship with Roy that he would say I cried on purpose. I don't know about you. I can't cry on purpose. Even, I don't know. I guess I could, if somebody said cry right now, I'd have to think of something really horribly bad to cry, to make myself cry. And even then sometimes I can't just cry on command. I think that's what makes actors and actresses all the millions of dollars. They can cry on command. That was really hard for me. And those admonitions were, were very, very hard. And I think anyone that's been in that situation can relate. I like to think it's just an inability on his part to cope with the tears. I have my thoughts on real reasons behind that, which will come to light in a very different podcast season. But those memories are, are strong for me. Let me share another one. I was at a school board meeting months after Molly died. It was still 2016. And there was a, a member, a Clemson School District employee who had also lost a child. And so the meeting was over and somebody said, how are you doing? And I just burst into tears. I had just sat through a two and a half hour school board meeting and a group of Molly's peers had come to present something and I had held it together and held it together. And the person that asked me how I was doing was Clint Cogswell. And he was genuine and I started to cry and he rubbed my back and he goes, that must've been hard. And this employee said, quickly, Barbara, get over here. And I ran over thinking she was going to comfort me. And she pulled me aside and just admonished me. You do not cry in public. No, 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 no. If you can't hold back your tears, you shouldn't be coming to me. Like it was just an admonition that crying in public was wrong. And I remember just being horrified because this was somebody that lost a child. If anyone understood how I felt, it was her. And then I realized that probably in her whole journey around her own child loss, she maybe hadn't been allowed to cry or had been admonished for crying or didn't receive support in her tears. In deciding what to do and how to be after Molly's death and, and choosing to stay here with Kenny and Gracie and not, you know, and not leave and continue my relationship with Roy, a huge piece of it was how much grief I knew I was going to have and how I shouldn't feel rushed getting through it, like getting through grief quickly. The timeline of grief isn't anyone's to dictate, even the person that's grieving, you know, it, it sets its own course and charts its own journey. This leads me into how I'm going to talk about crying apart from me in this podcast. Since I've started podcasting, I listen to a lot of other podcasts. And oftentimes what I like about them is they make me think about things. And I've listened to three or four different podcasts recently, but by very, very different people. And every single one of them has had an episode or a focus on crying and how difficult it is to cry comfortably or to understand crying or how to manage crying. Unbelievably interesting and diverse experiences around tears. So I've shared as well that in the months and years after Molly's death, if I cry to my mother, she starts to cry and starts talking about herself. And I remember doing this once with Gracie. Her crying made me cry. So it wasn't that I was trying to outcry her, but watching my daughter cry made me cry. And I just started talking and she goes, if you think this is helping me feel better, you're wrong. And I realized that I was doing exactly what my mother did. So I learned two things. I learned that perhaps my mother's tears were genuine in the sense that she couldn't help it. But I know that when she would start to cry, I would just get so frustrated. Like, I need you to hug me. I'm the child. You're the mother. And so now when Gracie cries, I hold them back. I take a big breath and I put on my strong lobby and I hug her and I address her tears. It's my job as a mother. And if there's maybe one time to moderate your crying, it would be when you're nurturing something that relies on you for support. There are times to be honest and open and share your tears. And I think sometimes there could be times to mitigate and moderate how they are. And then the other one was Kenny. He couldn't comfort me at all, but both of us had a dead child and I didn't have anything to give him to comfort him, nor did he have it to give to me. 
So I do know when I was thinking of the big picture and, and who would comfort Gracie and who would allow her to grieve the way she needed to grieve and everything, I chose what I chose. And whether or not that's been the right choice remains to be seen. But I do know that I have an easier time with certain people around crying comfortably and feeling supported in my crying and not belittled. I will say in regards to my relationship with Roy, we used to watch a million movies together, all sorts of movies. He's very, very big into movies. He's got a couple of bins of DVDs. You know, now there's, you know, streaming subscriptions and movie subscriptions. And we've watched every kind of movie there is to watch together. And there are times watching movies that we have both, I've started to tear up and I look over and he's, his chin is quivering and he's tearing up as well. The most recent one, relatively recent one, was The Woman in Gold. It was a Gustav Klimt portrait that was lost during the war and then ended up in a museum, I believe in Austria. And it belonged to a family and it was a picture of a member of the family. And the family was in the United States. And it's an incredible story, totally worth watching. And it's a movie that evokes tears. You can't help it. it. It just made us both cry. So it's interesting that, you know, one person can have such random and sort of seemingly opposing views around shedding a tear. I cry at movies all the time. I cry at TV commercials sometimes. I always say that. I cry at cotton commercials. And the reason I say that is when I was in high school, there was a cotton commercial and it was an old woman biting an old man's ear. They were sitting on a porch. And it was all about wearing cotton. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a detergent commercial. At any rate, so here's crying. So in making this podcast, in putting it together, I am going to mention four or five specific things and what I got from them and the fact that they even exist as podcasts. So five different podcasts. So two of them are from young people. One, one is 19 and the other is 21. And then two of them are really famous people. And then the one in the middle is kind of famous. And of the famous people, the ages range from I would say, you know, 40 to, 40 to 55, maybe, or 40 to 50, you know, older, older. So I'm going to start with the two unknown people. So the thing I love about podcasting is that I listen to podcasts all the time now. And I've come to find out that a lot of people do this and some very successfully and some do a few and never do them again. Others disappear, others get big. The most well-listened to podcasts, of course, are famous people or, or people that are connected to something famous. And some of my favorite podcasts are from people that aren't famous at all. So I'm going to start with the two young people. So I've talked about the podcast, OK, Yep. And I've talked about Molly's best friend, Skylar, who has just started a podcast. I think she's only released like five or six episodes. And it started as a daily podcast, but I think it won't be quite so, not pretty much not every day. That's a, that's a tall order. But hers is called Get Ready to Crumble. And there's no E on Crumble if you're searching it. Libby's most recent podcast for OK Yep was about crying. And she called it the power of crying. And in her podcast, she talks about how she cried all the time as a kid, that crying was just something that happened to her very easily and that she hated it because she had ridicule for it. She had ridicule in her family and they weren't trying to be mean. She's very, very clear, but here come the tears. Here come the waterworks. Oh no, she's crying again. You know, and the fact that when somebody cries all the time, you start to be like, okay, come on. Even Jingle Jangle, Jack Jack, this ties in here with Libby's recollections of being a child. He walks now and every time he falls down, he cries. And after the 55th time, it's hard to be, it's hard to be sympathetic, but Jack has a, like a fake cry and a, and a pretty consistently genuine cry. And so if it's the genuine cry, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with him. I pick him up and love him up. When it's the fake one, sometimes I fake cry back and laugh and all this. But crying can be grating sometimes. And Libby, this podcast episode is phenomenal. She really talks about 
why she feels that it's okay to cry and that we need to be less critical of people who cry, especially those who cry all the time. And she talks about the fact that boys don't cry as much as girls or men as much as women and how unfair this is because we all go through the same experiences in life. And if we're groomed to hide our feelings, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the health world that suppressing feelings raises inflammation in your body and isn't healthy. So her podcast was terrific. It's called OK Up and it's on all the different podcast outlets that you might think of. And I really enjoyed listening to it. I listened to it when I drive. She made some really good points about just about our culture and how uncomfortable you are with crying. The second podcast I'll talk about is, oh, get ready to crumble. And this is Skylar. So Skylar's second episode, or maybe third, is about her friendship with Molly. Skylar is brand new to podcasting. She's doing it very, very simply. She doesn't, she has a little graphic and I think she podcasts on her phone or maybe her computer, but she doesn't have any music. She doesn't edit the podcast. She doesn't, there's nothing fancy to it at all. It's a very, very simple, here I am. And here's what I have to say. She is definitely a new podcaster. Lots of long pauses, lots of ums and likes. And she's like me in the sense that she'll be talking about something and a thought comes into her head and she goes off on the tangent to that thought. So I'm saying all this because I want you to give her a chance. She actually has a lot of good things to say in her podcast. So she did an episode on Molly. And what I loved about it was two or three times in the episode, she started to cry. It got quiet, but you could hear that what she was doing is crying and she apologized for it. And she said, I don't like to cry in front of people. It makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like to cry. I don't want to like to show my emotions. And she was very, very clear that this was really difficult for her. Even that her tendency when she gets sad is to get angry which is also a very common defense mechanism to crying. The fact that she was willing to cry in a podcast recording and then still release the podcast is big because in my mind, that's her effort to say, I hate crying, but this was my best friend and so it makes me cry. The other thing I loved about that episode was she really spent a good half of that hour talking about her response to Molly's death and her grief process and the things at school that made it hard. People not knowing that she had been good friends with Molly and they shared quite a history. Not knowing that one of their best interactions post their friendship sort of ending was just before Molly's death at a play that she was in. And I loved that she was willing to share how difficult all that was in a podcast episode. I'm hoping that a lot of young people will listen. I think she has a pretty good following so far, but her discomfort with crying. Now I know her family. I know her mom. I know her dad. I know a lot of her relatives. And I know that that's a family that definitely wouldn't be all about supporting the crying. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I just mean that Skylar has relatives that are very, very, very tough and get back up when they've been knocked down and have very good reasons for being the way they are. And Skylar's outlook on life is a very, very direct relation sometimes to what she's gone through, especially with her dad. And so here we are her talking into a phone, me listening in my car a few weeks later, and I'm bawling. I'm in my car bawling because I didn't know a lot of what she was sharing. I knew some of how she felt, not, not all of how she felt. The recollection she had, the things that she remembered were beautiful. I was sobbing in the car, utterly sobbing. I had to actually drive around a while to collect myself before I came home. Not that I didn't want to cry in front of whoever might've been in my house, but like all of us, I was caught up in the crying. It was really, really difficult. So Skylar, I want to just congratulate you on following through on a goal. I'm going to do a podcast and she's got several episodes out now. I've only listened to two, so I need to catch up. But crying was a huge piece of her grief journey. And it's been one of her most difficult pieces because it isn't something that she does easily or is comfortable with. So 
So those are my two not so well-known young people that are venturing into the podcast world. I mean, they're worth listening to, even if you just listen to one episode and say there, I've done it. I'm going to go on next now to my sort of famous people. I have talked about both of these people before. So Maine Bialik, she was Amy Farrah Fowler on Big Bang Theory, has an amazing podcast. And she primarily talks with guests and they come on and talk about all sorts of different things. And one of her guests was Nora McInerney. Nora McInerney is best known for her TED Talk on grief. That's how she sort of became famous and she wrote a book. And she experienced a large amount of grief and trauma in one small time, death of her husband, death of a parent, all sorts of things all together. And she talks about how her grief journey has been so difficult. And one of the things she talks about is how difficult it is to really express grief in a way that people are supportive. You know, two years later, you're crying. Oh, why are you crying? Well, why do you think I'm crying? Well, gee, your husband died two years ago. Well, okay, but I'm still sad. You know, like just one of those, it was a really, really incredible TED Talk and a really incredible interview with my on what it's like to go through the grief process. She is unbelievably well-known. Actually, my podcast editor sent a couple of different interviews in her TED Talk to me as well. And obviously as a grieving mother, I'm pretty keyed into people like her just because they really do understand what it's like to be us, to be somebody in deep, profound grief. The other person I'll bring up is Glennon Doyle. And I've talked before about how I listening to her podcast can be difficult for me. I think I would have to watch them because I don't do well with all these different voices and I don't know who's talking. So if you're just listening to a podcast and there's more than one person, I don't know how you all are, but I know that for me, it's wait, wait, who's talking? Like I, I can't always tell. Glennon has a very, very distinctive voice. I think as do I. Hers is very high and sing-songy. Mine is more like I've been smoking a pack a day for 40 years, but it's very difficult for me to listen. Having said that, she had Elizabeth Gilbert on. She's the woman that wrote Eat, Pray, Love. It was a two-part episode on her journey through the grief around her life sort of falling apart and then realizing she was in love with her best friend, who was also female, then finally getting together and realizing they love one another and being together. And then she gets diagnosed with very terminal cancer and, and lives a year, only a year. Lots and lots of tear-jerking moments in this story. And one of the things she talks about is the great lengths that she went through to mask and hide how she was feeling so that she could perform the daily tasks of life. You have to mask it. You have to put it away. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. So these four podcast episodes right here from four very different people, two not famous people at all, very, very young, two very, very famous people, you know, in their middle, middle age years, perhaps in their forties all saying essentially the same thing, that with crying, there is such a balance. Should we cry? Shouldn't we cry? Is it supported? Is it ridiculed? Does it show weakness? Does it show honesty? When is it appropriate? When isn't it appropriate? We all cry. All of us cry. And sometimes it's just cultural norms that make it okay or not okay to shed the tears that exist inside all of us. The fifth person I'll talk about is Karen Kenny, and she does the Karen Kenny show. And she's sort of my middle ground person. She's the oldest of these five podcasters, but she is in the middle of famous. She knows a lot of well-known famous people. She's more famous than Skylar and Libby, not nearly as famous as Glennon and Meow and Mayim. But she has a very, very successful podcast that's followed by a lot of people. And one of her episodes was actually completely about Stop Apologizing for Crying. I think that's what it was called. It was episode 154. She talks about how the first thing we do when we start to cry is apologize. And I think I've done that very same thing on this podcast. 
I think I've started to cry and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know that I do apologize for crying all the time. When I start to cry, I apologize. And I have to feel that on some level, that stems back to watching that movie with my dad and getting laughed at about crying, about watching that little boy get teased in the playground for crying, about being overcome with emotions of watching someone cry. Someone that I've never seen crying and watching them cry is like, oh my God, they're crying. So we attach such hugeness to the tears. And sometimes they are huge, but like death, like taxes, <laughs> like getting gassy after eating beans, we all cry. Every single human being on the planet cries. So as I chit chat about this here, I just am left pondering in my own life with the many things that I still have yet to deal with and have closure on and try to have reparations and such. How many more tears I'll cry and how often I'll get ridiculed for crying them. My biggest and most stark recollections around tears obviously occur in my grief with Molly and losing Molly because I've cried more in the last six years than I have in all the 53 years beforehand. Another piece of crying that I think plays a part in me, and I have to ponder with Roy just because, you know, we spent so much time together off and on for sure, but a lot of, of time together. And it makes me wonder what in his life makes him so standoffish around tears, especially if they're shed in an argument or, or something that maybe he did. I do know that apologizing was also very difficult for Roy. And when you're in tears and, and begging for some sort of apology from someone or, or acknowledgement that how you feel is valid, it's hard to get shut down and be told. Kenny is a very, very different, you know, kind of person. And he, I have to say, just sort of cries appropriately. He doesn't cry all the time. He's not afraid to cry. And he doesn't have a judgment around it. He, he's the last person in the world that would judge either of his adult sons or his adult daughter for crying. I think in his life, he was the youngest. So he was probably, you know, he's the baby of the family and probably given a bit more permission to cry. There are episodes and memories he has from his childhood that when he talks about them, he gets teary-eyed. He gets teary-eyed when he talks about his dad's death. If I had to pick a sort of healthy male in my life around crying, I think it would be Kenny. I do know that in my life, in the life of my family, my dad and my brother Rick are much more willing to shed tears now without judgment. I think that they were both a product of their environment and their in the generational times. My Grammy Higgins, my dad's dad, was not a super nurturing human being. I don't remember a lot of hugs and kisses from her. I remember a lot of suck it ups and be tough and, and that kind of thing. And that's just sometimes how people are. That's what they know. And if there isn't permission to cry in your childhood, you're going to find it very difficult to cry as an adult. When I look into the reasons I cry now, I cry all the time. My biggest tear-provoking memories and events and current situations are all of the things that I lost along with Molly. And, and because the rest of my life will exist in that regard, I think I'll, I'll shed tears around these things forever. My life was just set in such a way that I thought everything I thought was going to happen hasn't and didn't. And so sometimes I struggle to recreate what I've lost. People, of course, assume right away I'm talking about Jack and I'm not at all. In fact, one of my biggest anxiety producers now is when Jack reminds me of something going on in my life at the time Molly or Gracie were that age and how different my life was. And, oh, I can't recreate this because, you know, it won't work. And, and I get very panicky about that. My relationship with Jack and moving forward with Molly is very, very different. In the filming of my TV commercial, 
there's a very, very well-placed tear rolling down my face. And I had a couple of people say, how did you do that? So what people don't really understand in the filming of, of that commercial anyway, I can't talk about any other commercial on TV that involves tears, but I was placed on a rock in the middle of the night in a canyon and given permission to feel everything. And I didn't really understand what was going to be done with me sitting on this rock. But the assistant director just said, for the next few hours, you're going to sit there and you'll hear music and you'll watch the sunrise. And we just want you to sit in your feelings, the happy things, the sad things, all of it, Molly, Jack, Brie tumors, you know, and it, then in my mind, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time thinking about my early days with Kenny and all that I thought would happen and all the things that went wrong there. And then I thought about Roy and my willingness to help his family and everything I lost in that venture. And also in both of these situations, it's not like, oh, poor me, poor me. I was an active part in all of it. And so I think of the pain and hurt that I've caused to these people. You know, I don't talk much about the year before Molly died. I had such a chaotic year taking on a job and spending time with David, who owned the school I was working at. And this is a person, if anyone gives permission to men to cry, it's David. He cries all the time. I can remember being very, very, hindsight, a bit manipulated by those tears. Here's the other avenue of crying that I was often accused of, but I have to wonder sometimes, do people use crying to manipulate others? I often felt that way. And I was often accused of that in my relationship with Roy, that I was using my tears to get something. And I know for me, that is nothing could be further from the truth. So I have to tread, tread gently here on accusing someone else of that very same thing. But I, I was deeply and profoundly affected by tears anytime he cried. And, and that was in the months and weeks leading up to Molly's death. After Molly's death, thousands of tears were shared between David and myself. You know, I stopped working at, at the school and he's somebody I see hardly at all now, just not a piece of my life whatsoever. But I think of crying and all of the roles that crying takes in life. I'm overwhelmed sometimes about it. As I sit here, the rain has stopped. So heaven is no longer shedding tears or the clouds up there. And I'm pondering entering into season five, I'm pondering all of the things I've lost in my life. And I have to be honest, I've spent the last year since Jack's birth really, really in a bit of a panic as to what my future will really be. I have a hard time picturing it in certain ways. I have a hard time believing that, that I won't have some sort of connection or friendship with Roy anymore. I can't imagine it in my life. It makes me, makes me cry. I have a hard time figuring out how Kenny and I will survive. We have a much better understanding now that we really live in the same house, living parallel lives, and we share a child. We share four children, really, to just live in heaven. And these are both situations that evoke huge tears in me. I think about Jack's high school graduation and how when I thought about Molly and Gracie graduating high school, I thought that seemed like 100 years away, and it's gone by now. If Molly were alive, she'd be you know, finishing her first year of college, she'd be home. It would be just very, very different. The time goes by so quickly. So I realized, dang, time goes by really quickly. Then I look at my mother, who's, you know, 21 years older than me. So there's 20 years between Gracie and Jack. So when I think of when Jack is Gracie's age, I'll be my mother's age. And I look at my mother approaching 80. She'll turn 80 next week. And how so suddenly her, her body has turned the corner and she just seems so old to me sometimes. And I think to myself, that can't be me 20 years from now, because 20 years ago, I was 38. <laughs> you know, sometimes time is just such a weird thing. And these are things that also can bring to mind tears. In all of these moments of pondering tears and crying, 
how am I as a crier? I definitely cry easily. I definitely can cry quickly. I can stop crying quickly. I cry in the car every time I drive. And it's not, this makes me cry because I'm thinking about being in the car. I cry in the car because that's my time to listen to things that might make me cry. It's my time to talk out loud to the people that I don't see anymore. It's the time I rage and express my screaming, crying, guttural tears over Molly's death that remain steadfast to this day. Recently, and I think it's part of it is just doing this podcast and, and retracing the thousand tiny steps. I cry about my job loss and not coaching track anymore. I would be, I lost all of that in 2010, 2011. And I was 20, 21 years in at that time. So I'd be finishing my 30th year coaching and teaching. And I just look at the people that are doing the coaching now and they're wonderful people, but I should be coaching. And I look at the athletes that have done well, but I'm sorry, not as good as they would have done had I been coaching. And I get angry and upset and I get sad and I cry. There's a big sign on top of the press box in Concord and I won't utter the name here. Anyone that lives in Concord knows what I'm talking about. And I think of the 20 years I spent in that press box and how hard it is for me to look at that sign and feel okay about it. And I'm very good friends with the person that pushed to get the sign placed. And when I explained to her all about it, she felt terrible. Like I had no idea. So anyway, I cry, I cry, I still cry a lot at all that I've lost. And I cry at all that, that I won't have in the future because of what I've lost. I look at things that used to make me cry that don't anymore. And of course, I look at that as progress. And I think to myself, is it progress? What's wrong that something used to make me shed a tear and it doesn't now? So I guess it means I'm less sad or I've, I'm able to find different emotions in those things. I'm sitting on coach's couch. And when coach died, you know, I bought his house. And I'm, to this day, I'm so glad that that house is something that is still a huge part of my life because it's such a place of love and joy. And that neighborhood over there is phenomenal. But in his house were a lot of his things, which when I emptied the house to, you know, fix it up a little bit and rent it, I clung to these things and his family has reclaimed some of them. I have this beautiful Barrister bookshelf here that I remember him having in his little computer room. And I love that I have it. I will tell you right now, the minute any one of his family members wants it, it's theirs because that belonged to Poppy and he's He's their person. But I'm sitting on coach's couch and, and I couldn't imagine not having it. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, you know, I might just be ready to, you know, give this couch to its next owner. And that doesn't make me cry. <laughs> it did. <laughs> the thought of the couch leaving made me cry a long time ago. You know, we look at our tears stopping as progress. I don't know. I think sometimes somebody just finally being willing to cry and be open about how they feel should be a good thing. I will never in my life forget Roy's tears at Molly's bedside because it was a genuine side of Roy that I hardly ever saw. He can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. It was profound for me. I look back at Gracie and Molly <laughs> this morning, actually. Gracie was a crier. Look at me jumping around. Gracie was a crier. Molly was an unbelievable crier. She cried a lot. And I realized both of them are incredibly sensitive, but Gracie would have an emotion or a feeling and she'd have to sit in it for a few minutes. And then she would cry. Molly cried all the time and she cried for a long time. When second grade ended and she realized she'd never go to school in that building again and she might never see her teacher again. She cried for three days. She just could not stop crying. This morning, Jack was crying and crying and crying. And one of the stories I told at Molly's memorial service was how one day all she was doing was crying when I called her out on it. She told me if I had done a better job as a mother, she wouldn't cry so much. It's funny now. It was actually funny then. 
So Jack was just crying and crying and crying this morning. And I said, okay, Jingle Jingle, you're reminding me of your big sister right now. And he was, he was just crying all the time. And I'll tell you what, I want so much for Jack to always feel that it's okay for him to cry. I do. There's nothing wrong with crying. It's a very genuine emotion or a genuine response to a variety of emotions. But I also know he's a boy and that there will be boys in his life that will not be supportive of that. Connected to this, the Molly B Foundation does a scholarship at Concord High School every year. It's a $13,000 scholarship. And it's not a set amount for any recipients. It's a matter of how many recipients meet the qualifications for the scholarship. And then we divide the 13 by that number. So this year, there were 13 people chosen. and Each person will get a $1,000 scholarship. And the criteria are going into a health profession of some sort, ensuring that you're going into that with the express purpose of helping people in a way that you saw somebody not get helped. And that sort of parallels Molly's being ignored and not being believed about the brain tumor and having a killer in the hospital. And then the other one is music, singing, theater, dance, like the performing arts and connections there. And again, the connection isn't just like, yeah, it was great. The connection is how being connected to that has been helpful in life. And so there were 21 applicants this year. 13 of them were spot on. And then there were a handful that were, that were relatively close. But the number 13 is meaningful to me. $1,300 or 13 recipients or $1,000 or whatever. Where am I going with this? As is the case in many things, healthcare and performing arts, girls outnumber boys. Maybe boys outnumber girls in terms of who's going to go to medical school. I'm not sure now, but I know for a long time, most doctors were men and most nurses were women. The number of people hopefully is better. But in terms of scholarship applicants, what I've noticed last year and this year is the male applicants, the boys that have applied for the Molly B scholarship or meet the criteria, when they talk about their biggest struggles, it comes around being a boy and being bullied for acting in a way that isn't considered masculine. Oh, you're, you're acting more feminine than masculine. Crying is definitely considered a feminine reaction to an emotion. You know, it's okay for women to cry, not for men. It's okay for girls to cry, not for boys. There are newscasters that have cried on the air. That moment remains huge because it's such a public display of emotion that people remember it. It was just profound to me that here we are assigning an absolutely human response to emotion, a female or uh, a male, a masculine or a feminine designation. Guys cry just like girls cry. Tears come out of eyes. The tears don't know what gender their eyes are. It just was profound to me and it stuck out to me. And it connects to this episode because I just really strongly feel that in order for us to find any level of world peace, any level of, forget world peace, any level of just getting along with each other and accepting one another, same or different, is our willingness to, to accept people's emotions as genuine and as what they are. This puts a lot of pressure on those who might have learned that using your emotions to be manipulative is okay. It's not okay. <laughs> And so when you look at all that's going on in the news right now, you have these horrible mass shootings and all the fights around gun control. You have the huge divide around Roe v. Wade and abortion. So you have all those things going along in the political realm. You have all of the issues around race and gender equity. And is one gender or race better or stronger than the other? We have so many things. We have the war in Ukraine. We have so many things in our life right now that evoke 
emotion and tears. And I find that what everyone is most comfortable with is deflection, finger pointing and anger. And where we see tears are all those mothers, all those mothers outside the school in Texas and all the schools over the last years mourning the loss of their children. You know, the churches, the synagogues, the grocery stores, the hospitals where people are going in with guns they've recently purchased to kill people they're angry at. I think all of this, unfortunately, is a huge part of us as humanity coming to terms with how, what we need to do to get along with one another. In my religion, the Baha'i faith, women and men are considered equal. The religion was founded in the late 1800s. There are very few places in the world where men and women are actually truly equal or equitable in treatment anywhere. We are very different. And of course, like anything, what we do to try to be equal is to be the same. And men aren't women and women aren't men, nor should we try to be what we're not. And I think a lot of the gender issues that are coming to light and the wonderful ways that people are finding who they really are, regardless of the body in which they live, to me, this speaks a lot to how we have treated people based on their gender. And this being an episode about crying, I think that this is a big piece of how we will one day not value or judge humanity by their gender, that we will use their gender perhaps in how we come to view somebody, but it won't be a tool to withhold or ridicule or hurt or judge a person, that how they are as a human will be that tool, not their gender. I'm at a point now where I think I've said all I can say about crying. I just think that the fact that there's so much talk around it and then it receives such a wide response and a varied response I don't know. What are you like as a crier? Do you cry all the time? I ponder friends of Gracie's and Molly's over the years. I look at friends of mine. I look at my family. Everybody's different. And, and if you're not someone that cries comfortably or easily, again, not a judgment, something to ponder because, because shedding tears and crying is a big piece of our culture. And in this list of podcast episodes that I've shared, everyone here has addressed how uncomfortable it is to cry sometimes, especially in front of people and their difficulties around it. Also, in every single one of these podcasts, they've talked about how that doesn't seem right, that it should be okay to cry. You know, KK talks about why we always apologize for it. Both Glennon's guest and Maim's guests talk about how crying was such an integral piece of their process around grieving and trauma and loss. Skylar and Libby both talk about how they were uncomfortable doing it. And Libby goes into much more detail than Skylar did around how she's come to embrace her tears. Skylar wasn't doing an episode on crying. She was talking about Molly and her friendship with Molly and that loss and, and how much that continues to make her cry and that she thinks about it a lot. So that makes sense there. If I had to come to a conclusion on this and really look at myself as a crier, I have a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, I cry easily and I'm not ashamed of my tears. And if someone tells me to stop crying, my response now would be, why? <laughs> what makes you tell me to stop crying? The other piece is, I learned very quickly at an early age, not only from being ridiculed for crying by my dad and my brother, but I was a victim of child abuse early on. And the only way I survived what was happening to me when the abuse was actually occurring was to be emotionless, to be completely still, to fake sleep, and to just be emotionless. I had no idea how to process what was happening to me or even what was going on when it first began. It wasn't until I got older and learned what childhood sexual abuse was that I realized how bad it was, what was going on. I shouldn't have to be shouldering this. But I will tell you, when it comes to me and talking about myself and my abuse and my 
experiences around it and how I have reacted as a person, I have a huge, huge shutdown in certain situations around emotions. And I call it, I call it stepping out. I've talked about it before, that dissociation piece. I know that I have people that call me, all right, go be Barb, go put your Barb hat on. And what that means is I'm very, very good at putting my emotions at bay for a moment, putting them in a box and tying a pretty ribbon so that I can execute something. A good example of this would be at the hospital when I went out to address Molly's friends and I had to talk to them. I had to talk to them in a way that was giving them facts and comforting them. And so I took a big breath and I stepped out and I was able to articulate every detail of what had happened to her and the fact that she was gone forever without crying because those girls needed to hear it for me and they needed to hear it well. When I do public speaking sometimes, I can go ahead and be Barb and do my Barb thing. I don't write speeches. I outline them and I think about them and I process them. Sometimes I'll, I'll write a speech and then I'll just go talk and I'll look at the speech I wrote and go, I should have read this. It's really good. But I don't feel reading a speech is as genuine as just talking from the heart. Having said that, those are examples of when I'm just Barb. I just am going to step in and be Barb. So I think sometimes if there are times that I don't cry, it's because I very, very consciously put it all in a box because that was the safest way for me to live for a long, long time as a child and in my high school and college years. So I don't know. I guess that's where I'll stop. It's funny. In my episode about crying, I've come close to crying a couple of times and quickly stopped. So if actions speak louder than words, it's clear that my relationship with crying is as inconsistent as my relationship might be with a lot of things. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. So how much do you cry? Do you have things that make you cry? Do you cry at movies? Do you cry when you hurt yourself? Do you cry for no reason? I cry a lot. I cry all the time. And it's not uncommon for me to just cry by myself because I think sometimes it's just the easiest place to cry. But I will not apologize for it. And I do hope that some of the things that make me cry right now will be able to be resolved or fixed or repaired in some way so that I can find new things to cry about. So anyway, this was my epilogue episode. All of my Jack journey and all those details have brought a myriad of tears, happy tears, sad tears, angry tears. Kenny and his daughter Katie had some reparation. She hasn't met Jack yet and has been very angry. And so I've shed many tears around all that goes into my past with Kenny and my history. And hopefully, hopefully those tears are coming to an end. You know, just in hindsight and retrospect, my hope is that my relationship with crying becomes more easy and seamless. And I have less things to cry sad tears about and more things to cry happier emotional tears about, unless I'm watching a movie with Roy, in which case we can both cry. At any rate, that's where I'll end. I want all of you to be good to yourselves. Do something today that makes you cry tears of joy. I don't know. Do something good for someone else. Make yourself happy. That's what Molly would want. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.